You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to the first episode of Complementarianish. I'm Katie Grubbs, and with me today are Alexis Neal and Sarah Kluster. This is a brand new endeavor that we're trying out tonight that's adjacent to the Christian Feminist Podcast. So today's episode is going to, of necessity, going to involve lots of self-definition, and we want to warmly welcome any CFP listeners who are trying this out, and also any other listeners out there. We just want to welcome you to uh, a new experience. So we want to start out with who we are and give you some background on ourselves before we start our conversation today. So we are first going to get started with Alexis Neal. Hi, uh, my name is Alexis Neal. I, uh, I live in southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle Neal. Um, he is of the City of Man podcast, uh, an, another po- uh, podcast within the Christian Humanist Radio Network, uh, specifically their politics podcast Um uh, and we have our, our two little boys there with us as well. Uh, for the most part, I spend my time with them as a stay-at-home mom. But uh, by training, I'm actually an attorney. Um, and I get to still use some of that training, uh, even though I'm home with the kids a lot, um, uh, by uh, teaching a handful of law-related classes uh, as an adjunct at Southwest Baptist University, where my husband is on the political science faculty. Um, and also, um, I've been able to uh, put put his political science training to some practice use uh, and applications as well uh, by becoming involved with our local government here. Thank you so much. Um, next, let's meet Sarah Kluster. Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Sarah Kluster, and I live with my husband in Fort Worth. I just got married at the beginning of August, and so I have to say that I thought that I kind of understood uh, lots of things about uh, egalitarianism and complementarianism, and then I got married, and, and oh, okay, this is reality is, is different than sometimes what you what you are told and what you think, and so I was even more excited to be a part of this after getting married and experiencing it um, in real life. I am by training a librarian, but currently I'm um, living in Fort Worth. My husband Andy is a uh, doctoral candidate at TCU, and he is studying the Progressive Era, uh, specifically in El Paso, Texas. And I love uh, doing podcasting with uh, these ladies. They're really great. Thanks so much. I'm Katie Grubbs, and I live in Houston, Texas. And um, my husband, David Grubbs, is on the Christian Humanist Podcast, and he teaches at Houston Baptist University full-time. Um, I am uh, part-time employed with Houston Baptist University as an adjunct professor of English. Currently, I'm teaching fully online, so um, three or four classes a semester I'm teaching online, uh, freshman writing and um, writing about literature. And at least for the last year, I've also been spending some time developing new classes, which has been really fun. So I've gotten the chance to completely remake the freshman composition sequence online in the online environment for HBU. And I've just finished up 
developing the, the last class in that sequence. And uh, as far as what I do with the rest of my time, like Alexis, I actually spend most of my time caring for my small children. Um, the teaching part of my life is, is a fairly small corner. Um, David and I have four children. Um, we have a six-year-old, a four-year-old, two-year-old, and I have a six-month-old baby. And um, I spend a ton of my time in the car because two of our kids are in the autism spectrum and one of them has kind of therapies and various appointments. So um, even though two of them are in school, we, we spend a lot of time in the car. And, uh, but in the, in my, you know, copious spare time, um, I really do enjoy podcasting. That's one of my favorite things uh, to do to, to feel like um, my academic self again, right, from when I was a full-time teacher. And um, I also enjoy teaching Bible study at church. And our whole church is taking um, a whole semester off from midweek Bible study. It's unheard of, but they wanted everybody to have a break and a reset. So um, next semester, I won't be teaching Bible study. But this semester, um, I had a really great time teaching a class about kind of unnoticed or forgotten women of the Bible. So we spent the semester learning about women like Abigail and JL and um, Lydia, people who, you know, you might hear name checked, but you usually never hear a full class on. Um, there's not Bible studies out there really written about JL. So um, it was really a lot of fun. So um, before we move on to the reading that we wanted to discuss for this first episode, we just wanted to talk a bit about why are we doing this? You know, we've said that we're adjacent to the Christian Feminist Podcast, and um, this whole endeavor kind of grew out of CFP. We all have been podcasting with Christian Feminist Podcast for a while um, and are in that environment very much amongst egalitarian um, women. You know, a lot of our friends um, there are podcasting as egalitarians. We're complementarians, but we're always, we've always had such a great collegial atmosphere on the Christian Feminist Podcast and been able to have such great discussion. And, um, but we wanted to take a chance to do something um, a little more specifically complementarian um, for various reasons that we're going to discuss. And um, I kind of started a while back. Um, I had been listening to some different podcasts and I had, um, and reading some different articles and I was kind of becoming slightly disturbed because I'd seen a kind of a, a strain of argument on the complementarian side that some feminist texts just shouldn't even be read, um, that some op opposing viewpoints shouldn't even be engaged with. Um, and that is very much happening alongside a kind of opinion that, you know, feminist is almost a dirty word um, or something that um, a complementarian woman should never be. Well, obviously, you know, we are podcasting in the Christian Feminist Podcast, so we're comfortable enough with that label to to affiliate ourselves um, with those ideas. And um, as part of the CFP, we've spent a lot of time engaging with those viewpoints and engaging with other viewpoints. And um, one time we did this, I think, really, really well is um, several maybe a year or two years ago, we did um, a pair of episodes, and it was episodes uh, 36 and 37 of the Christian Feminist Podcast, but we actually did a complementarian primer and an egalitarian primer, two episodes, paired episodes, in which we worked through the minutia of those two theologies, how they're different, and what they mean. What do we mean when we say complementarian? What do we mean when we say egalitarian? because not a lot of people are familiar with those terms. Uh, I come across women in my church all the time who I know are complementarian because they affirm our church's theologies, but they've never heard the word complementarian. 
So um, we've been engaging with the, these ideas on the CFP for a long time. And um, so the idea of engaging with an opposing viewpoint and then refining one's views is something that has always been um, at least part of my academic life and that's always been something I've been looking for. So then when I encountered this idea that, oh, we shouldn't even engage with some feminist text because that's just beyond the pale or um, that was just felt very wrong to me, you know, that you would um, not even engage with an opposing idea to know exactly what you object to in that idea. And obviously there are some things that, no, we shouldn't be reading because they are sinful. But the idea that a, an opposing theology or an opposing political viewpoint shouldn't be engaged with um, felt wrong. And so I kind of went looking for um, a podcast of complementarian women who were grappling with theological and philosophical issues of gender kind of from a more academic perspective. And I, I wasn't finding anything. Um, and I thought it was one of those moments where, I th where you know, maybe from time to time you've found in your life where you think someone should do something and then you realize that someone is you. <laughs> um, and so I thought, well, maybe we could do this. Maybe we could um, kind of try to bring that collegial, you know, um, more theoretical consideration of issues of gender um, that we have going on the CFP, bring that into the complementarian world and use that, really put the, um, put the focus on complementarian issues and ideas and theologies. So um, that's why we're beginning complementarian-ish. And just a note on the title, we don't say complementarian-ish to suggest that we're not really complementarian. That's not what's meant by that. But that is meant to refer to the fact that there's really a broad spectrum encompassed by those who claim the term. And um, so we just want to make it um, clear that complementarianism is not monolithic. We're not all the same. So that's why we call it complementarian-ish. So um, that was, I know that was a little bit lengthy, listeners. I'm sorry for that. We wanted to just really give a, a, clear, um, a clear word about why we're here, why we're doing this. So that, um, and one other thing, one other reason we wanted to do this also is that there seems to be a lot of confusion out, out there um, online, particularly maybe among people who have no familiarity with complementarianism at all. There seems to be a lot of confusion, a lot of people who kind of hear complementarian and hear different roles or whatever and immediately just kind of think oh christian patriarchy this is you know this is this is like the duggars over here um and so we wanted to also kind of um be giving uh clearer definitions of what does complementarian mean you know how many different versions there are and what is it not um for people who aren't familiar with the term all right so moving kind of moving forward um, for today's episode, we wanted to engage with a reading. We didn't just want to be kind of just talking about um, how we feel about it, though we are going to get to the personal stuff at the end. But um, we all read an article this evening, um, and it's called A Word of Empathy, Warning, and Counsel for Narrow Complementarians, written by Jonathan Lehman, who's editorial director of Nine Marks, and also an elder at Cheverly Baptist Church in Cheverly, Maryland. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of break down um, the article and summarize it in pieces, um, taking, taking some time between to discuss the ideas. The reason that I chose this article is because Lehman does a great job of setting out various ways of defining what it means to be complementarian, and um, that's what we're doing. That's uh, the whole point in this first episode is to try to define what complementarianism is for us and what it looks like 
in the kind of whole sphere of complementarianism. And so to do that, we're going to kind of um, just walk through the article. So first, Sarah is going to summarize for us, um, you know, in, in the title, he refers to narrow complementarians. Well, what does that mean? So Sarah's going to break down the differences um, that he outlines between narrow and broad in the beginning of the article. So why don't you go ahead and, and, and jump right into that, Sarah? Uh, thanks, Katie. So what our um, author is talking about is he first kind of gives us a, a definition of what complementarians are. That way we can kind of really understand, okay, this is what we're all going to agree on. And then he's going to further divide the narrow versus broad. And so he's going to write that complementarians are going to unite around the idea that uh, men, God created men and women in equal dignity and worth, but has assigned different roles for them in the church and the home. And that that is, that's kind of the baseline that we're all like, yeah, we can all thumbs up that. We can all like that on Facebook. We're, we're all good with that definition. But then he uh, uh, gives some definitions about, again, on the spectrum of what complementarians can be. And so he talks, uh, first he talks about narrow complementarians. Um, and so that they are going to, uh, they are going to be a very, very Bible only impulse. And what they mean by that is one, they don't want to take, they don't want to attribute anything else, um, other than what we have directly received through God's word. Um, and we want to make, and so there is to just teach what the Bible teaches and avoid mistaking um, the things we want culturally um, for and attributing them uh, as being biblical just because we happen to like them. And we don't want to, uh, we don't want to uh, bind men and women's consciousness. And we, they really want to, their idea is they're really trying to affirm that Christian freedom and that the idea being that as we know from second from second corinthians um where the lord um the lord is the spirit and where the or the lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there is liberty and so this idea that it is very important for narrow complementarians that men and women have as much freedom um as possible to um either volunteer in the church have the uh, structure of their families as is necessary for them. Um, and they, they would definitely affirm the idea that, you know, uh, Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands and first Timothy 2.12. Uh, I do not permit women to teach or have or exercise or have authority over men. So they would, they would affirm that, but they would affirm that and as narrowly as possible. And so that's where that narrow is going to come from. Um, and so, uh, while the, the broad camp is going to have more of an, uh, of an idea that they're going to share some of those goals in terms of, I, you know, they, they do not want to, uh, overly, um, they do not want to overly, uh, uh, bind women to an idea that is not right for them, but the, but they would say that, they aim to systemize what we see in scripture um, and women for discipleship. And they want to push back against a the Western culture's kind of push towards androgyny and the interchangeability of men and women as if we are the same. Um, and it talks a lot about that. Um, and so one of the things that we have here is, uh, I believe Katie mentioned this earlier, that 
this article was written in response to uh, the very famed John Piper's arguing that women that women should not teach in seminaries. Well, a narrow complementarian is going to say, well, that's kind of ridiculous because if they're teaching biblical history or anything like that, there are many ways that women could be professors in a seminary and that that will, and you know, why should that be an issue at all? We we're not concerned when they go to undergraduate and they have female geology professors, like it's a non-issue. Um, and so, and then that would be kind of the, the narrow, uh, definition where the broader complementarian is going to either agree or as they say here, sympathetically disagree. Um, and that broader tends to, again, when they're talking about broad, that they have a broader definition of what complementarianism can be for the lives of Christians and that it, it, it goes beyond just the some of the literal things that the Bible is saying and that it can be interpreted for a broader um, family and social structure. Um, is that kind of what y'all are getting from that, uh, Alexis and Katie? I think you're right. I mean, I, I think the the difference there, he he focuses on the biblicist versus the systematic approach. Um, the, the biblicist who says, "Look, I'm I'm not willing to go beyond the the, the words of scripture, uh, and the words of scripture explicitly uh, address uh, the roles in the home and, and and in the church, the local church, um, but they do not directly address um, roles out uh, in, in the the civil world." Um, and so the, the narrow complementarian, uh, like you said, is going to say where where the Bible is silent, I too will be silent. Um, and that the but that the broad complementarian isn't necessarily fencing the law or or trying to be pharisaical, but instead is trying to, like you said, systematize um, and and try to craft a a coherent unified theory or or philosophy that reflects. Um, the whole council of scripture. Uh, and so the, the the two views are both attempting to hold scripture up uh, and treat it with a very high view, um, but their focus is, is slightly different, one through the lens of, of more direct biblicism and, and one through that lens of systematic theology. I have to say, um, th this is one of those times where the, the definitions that he's using in my mind seem like they should be the opposite. And so when I, when I, when I read this initially, when they would talk about narrow complementarians, in my mind, that's like, oh, you're 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 being narrow, meaning like narrow-minded almost, which, like, like, oh, we're being very, very literal in the sense of, and it for I don't know for me that like and broad meaning like, oh, you have a much more broad view of it in the sense of it's more open, whereas narrow is more strictly defined. And so, in in terms of what a woman's role should be, does that make sense? And so. It took me one or two times saying, yeah. of reading it that I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, it's it's the opposite of what I think the term should mean. And, and so for me, I, I, I came up with a, I was thinking maybe like instead of narrow, I like the idea of like loose, that you have a much looser, um, a much looser view of how it fits on society or fits on the family. And again, that, um, it would be much more of a, you know, what the Bible says, yes, and then freedom um, where the Bible does not explicitly state. Um, but I couldn't come up with a really good alternative word for the for 
broad. And so I was like loose and rigid, but sometimes rigid has a really negative, um, can have a negative uh, implication. I don't mean it to be negative, but that was just the only thing I could think of that was kind of the opposite. And again, that's kind of me having this idea of like, it's one or the other. And so even for us, sometimes there, it's hard to view things as a spectrum and not an either or. Does that make sense? It does. Um, and one other, another helpful term, I think, to, to take in concert with these is um, Carl Truman likes to use the phrase mirror complementarian, which I kind of like, by which he means narrow. I think that his his phrase mere complementarianism would relate to this narrow complementarian, right? The idea that what's on the page is what I do. So, you know, no teaching in the church from the pulpit over men. No, you know, and you need to submit to your husband. Like, you know, um, that more, or um, Alexis, like Alexis said, he calls it biblicist. Um, and I kind of like mere complementarian with that. That's the phrase that I used for myself until I, until this idea of narrow broad, which I kind of do like. Um, that, you know, it, with the idea, I like mere complementarian because it's the idea of it's like it's stripped down to the basics. You know, what does the Bible actually say on the page? That's what we believe. And beyond that, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to dictate to people. Whereas, you know, in the, in the more Piper-esque broad camp, um, and, you know, it, and I do, and actually I think more than the term broad, I actually think I like the term systematic because that is exactly that what they're well. doing. Yeah, um, and I kind of, you know, and I wouldn't recommend this to everyone because it's a long book. Um, I actually sat down and have read most of Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, <laughs> which was the the kind of foundational text that Piper and Grudem and the others did when they first kind of did the Danvers Statement and all that stuff way back. Um, but there's a, a lot of that is playing out in that book. It's, it's the idea that, okay, they're thinking, okay, this is what we're told exp- explicitly to do in these Bible verses, yes. But where's that coming from? God had a reason for it. You know, there must be a rationale. And so it's kind of then going, okay, what is the system that's happening? What is systematic about this? What unites these disparate verses that talk about things that women shouldn't do or things they should do? And um, so systematic, I think, is a, is a term I like slightly better than broad. I see what you're saying about how it could be, it could be confusing, though, depending on the connotations that you would have with broad or narrow. <laughs> Um, probably the reason he picked one of the reasons he might have picked that too is the idea of like the broad way and the narrow way as depicted in scripture but even that's not a great metaphor or simile sorry because the broad way is terrible <laughs> in the Bible you don't want to be on the broad way um, yeah yeah um, no that makes perfect sense um, Alexis why don't you go ahead we're gonna we're gonna move into the next bit because we don't want to um, we don't want to dally too long. So um, he also kind of outlines um, in the in the title, he talks about a word of empathy and a word of warning. And Alexis is going to summarize a little bit of that for us now. Right. So uh, in the article, um, Lehman uh, goes ahead and identifies himself as part of what he calls this this broad view of complementarianism. Um, but he he offers, it's essentially sort of a pros and a cons or, or sort of uh, cautions to both sides, but they're they're framed as an empathy, an expression of agreement and, and empathy with the narrow complementarian um, and then warnings to that narrow complementarian. So ways that they're right, ways that they may need to be a little bit more cautious. Um, his, his expression of empathy is that he agrees that we ought not to bind where scripture does not. Um, so he, he shares the biblicist impulse 
um, that he attributes to the narrow view um, or the mere view, uh, as you were saying, Katie. Uh, but he also acknowledges uh, the benefit uh, and the necessity of a systematic approach. Um, and, and so he, he views systematic theology as, as a necessary and, and beneficial aspect of theology. And he specifically name checks um, the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, that being another example of, of a word that does not occur in the text of Scripture. But uh, taking the whole counsel of Scripture, you can clearly see the Trinity there. So it's a doctrine that's developed more systematically, um, and he points out that it takes a while to iron out. And so uh, he expresses the desire that we um, not exactly postpone the conversation, but that we be patient and realize that it may take a while before we come up with um, a, a, a systematic theology regarding issues of gender that is accepted to the same degree that, say, um, one of the creedal discussions of, of the Trinity is accepted now. Um, so we're just we're not there yet. He his he from his perspective, he says that that this conversation has only really been taking place in earnest since the 1980s. So that's pretty young in theological terms. Um, and so uh, it's going to take a while before we can we can really um parse through and, and, and formulate a, a really good theological view of this matter from a systematic perspective. Um, and he does acknowledge that that incorrect systematic definitions have very serious consequences. He has a whole list of those there, the negative effects on women and on men if we end up um, – using a systematic definition that's that's problematic or flawed. Um, and, and he does sort of focus on these two companion issues that, that pop up. One is the definitional side of things. That is, what do you think it means to be a man and what do you think it means to be a woman? Or uh, as the big blue book says, right, biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. Uh, and then how do you apply that definition? Uh, so you could have people in the broad camp who have a different definition they're working from. Um, and they actually would maybe not use Piper's definition from the Big Blue Book. Um, and then they would be applying that definition. But you could also have people who share that definition and still apply it differently and reach different conclusions about a specific issue, like whether a woman should teach in seminary um, or whether a woman should be a police officer, things like that, which Piper has also uh, discussed. So um, so he does acknowledge that there are serious problems if we get those definitions wrong and basically seems to be admitting that we probably don't have them right just because we haven't been doing this all that long. Um, and then he also uh, takes a moment to acknowledge that his experience is fairly limited uh, because um, because essentially applications and abuses of broad complementarianism can vary significantly with geography and experience. So um, he points out that he's lived primarily in, in areas that have a more egalitarian culture uh, and therefore may not have the same experience or um, firsthand knowledge of uh, some of the abuses of broad complementarianism that might take place in um, maybe a rural community or, or something like that, that's that's not necessarily got as much of a cultural egalitarianism um, there. So those are his expressions um, of, of empathy toward the narrow complementarian, uh, again, that affirming of the biblicist impulse. Uh, but he also takes a moment to warn the, the narrow complementarian that minimizing the difference between men and women does hurt discipleship. Uh, and what he means here, there's a couple things. One is he points out that while it may sound great to sort of maintain neutrality or, or sort of radio silence on this issue, speak where the Bible speaks and be silent about everything else, um, practice 
practically speaking, that's not going to be sustainable in the face of strong cultural currents. There are a lot of voices um, in the culture that are speaking very loudly and passionately about issues of gender, uh, femininity, masculinity, whether those are even uh, real categories. Um, and so if the church is silent on those issues, then the cultural voices are going to uh, are going to predominate and they're going to be influencing your your members in your local body. So um, you don't get to just sort of maintain um, that silence or neutrality uh, because you're 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 just going to end up functionally baptizing what the culture is saying. And there are very legitimate reasons, I think, to be very cautious about just letting whatever the cultural uh, mindset is uh, guide your members. Um, and, and I appreciated here, he, he makes specific mention uh, of the need to both disciple people uh, out of patriarchy, if that's where they are, that's the view they hold, but also disciple them out of interchangeability, if they, that's more the perspective that, that they come from. So the idea is you're calling both errors um, to repent and to uh, instead follow the, this biblical um Council. Uh, so I appreciated his acknowledgement that both of those are going to be errors that need to be repented of, and you call people out of those things. Um, he also points out that there are a number of other areas where we um, apply these universal Christian values. Um, he mentions that sometimes in churches that have a more narrow complementarian view, uh, we can just sort of say, let's let's just bypass the issues of what it means to be a Christian woman or a Christian man and just talk about what it means to be a Christian and focus on these issues um, of universal Christian values. Uh, but he points out that we have a lot of resources that, that guide us in applying those values um, in various contexts. Um, and discipleship is one way that, that we can do that. And it, he, he argues that it doesn't really make sense not to provide counsel um, for applying those Christian values or, or seeking to uh, develop those Christian values specifically as men and women. Um, and, and I would say um, as well, one of the things um, that he brings up that I think is really valid um, and is certainly something that, that I've struggled with some uh, is that if, if you hold to a narrow view of complementarianism, um, than what you are a mere view, as, we, as we've been saying, um, then these economic restrictions on the roles of women, and, and I use the term economic, it's, it's one that's borrowed from a theology of the Trinity, um, which is an area of theology that I think has been very helpful to, um, to inform the way I've thought about uh, issues of complementarianism. Um, but when we talk about the Trinity, we talk about both the, the economic side of the Trinity, that is how the Trinity acts, the members of the Trinity act, um, and then we also have the ontological Trinity, and that is uh, what they are, uh, who they are in, in their nature. Um, and that's their, their ontological or imminent role, um, as opposed to their economic, practical, what do they do roles. So I think that's a helpful way to think about this issue here. But when we focus on the economic restrictions on, on the role of women, um, that is what they can actually do, um, not their nature or their, their value, um, in the church and in the home. And, and if we embrace that and say, you know, you have a limitation on, on what you can do in the home and what you can do at the church. And beyond that, it doesn't matter. Um, that can start to seem really arbitrary um, if we're not rooting it in any kind of created distinction. Um, if there is no difference between men and women, if we are interchangeable uh, in all other respects, then the the 
the decision to treat us differently or to have us behave differently in those two contexts can start to seem arbitrary. And I think that's a really valid point um, that 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 uh, bears bears mention. Um, he also a uh, little bit later uh, in in the article uh, specifically cautions Christians on both sides uh, of this mere and broad or mere and systematic divide uh, to beware of, of how they're speaking to one another to speak charitably uh, and to beware of um, our motives specifically if our motive uh, is pride in in our in our correct position either as the the one who is being true to the Bible by holding a broader or systematic view or as one who is uh, being truer to the Bible by having a a more liberated view uh, or, or even a desire to be, ingratiating ourselves with the culture uh, and distancing ourselves from what we view as sort of the unpopular branch of the church. Uh, and that's not to say that that people uh, necessarily have those motives, but I think it, the potential is real and it's worth it to examine our hearts to think about what, what our attitudes are. Um, and there was a specific admonition that he included also that there was a, a podcast that was released by Nine Marks, sort of a companion podcast in which the author, Jonathan Lehman, discusses these issues with uh, Mark Dever, the, the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And one of the specific admonitions he had in that was uh, was specifically with regard to language. Um, if you are coming at, at the to the issue of complementarianism from a broader or systematic view to be very careful and try to avoid the language of heresy in describing the narrow complementarian. Uh, and if you are coming um, at the issue from a more narrow or mere perspective, uh, to be very slow to use the language of justice um, in the way that you're you're defending your position and opposing the broad view. Uh, so those are some of the, the concerns that he raises um, in uh, in this particular piece. Uh, I am curious, um, have you guys seen um, this uh, one particular tendency or the other as far as uh, tendency toward patriarchy um, in a more broad complementarian setting or, or towards interchangeability in a more narrow or mere complementarian setting? I've, I've seen more of the tendency toward patriarchy, but part of that could be um, just, you know, like, the stuff I was around kind of growing up, which, and that is kind of at a remove from me because I, I didn't grow up in a situation that was, you know, kind of, um, a very Christian patriarchal situation, you might say, but my husband did. And so, um, kind of at second hand, I've heard a lot and I've, I've experienced a lot of that theology, not because that's something that he's believing or that, that is functioning in our relationship, but just because, you know, when we first met, I wanted to understand him better. And so I read a lot of that stuff because that's the stuff that he encountered a lot when he was growing up. And, um, though that, that's not stuff that's, that's prevalent or in his parents' household at all anymore. But so, you know, so I'm very familiar with things like the umbrella of protection, right? And all these different kind of ideas, um, Christian patriarchy ideas. So I, I think I've seen that more than the other um, and have read more. But I also think that um, it's also just easier to see that slide into Christian patriarchy because it's more restrictive. So um, maybe, I don't know what this says about me, but I tend to pick up way more easily on restrictions that I might th see being placed on myself or other women. Um, and I think that it's, it's harder to see the slide into interchangeability because, like Lehman said, the interchangeable idea is so prevalent in our culture that it's kind of always in the background anyway. And so, um, and, I, and I do see that sometimes. Our current, our current church we attend 
is absolutely complementary to Southern Baptist Church. But in the ways that um, we talk about men and women in our church, I do think we're more narrow than broad. Um, so that um, often in our church, the the kind of um, the priesthood and, and not in the sense of being a priest or being a pastor, but like the priesthood of all believers. But, um, you know, there's lots of affirmation of the priesthood of women in our church, I think, honestly, as, as, a, as an attempt to correct or balance um, any idea that that women might be told or might get that that men are somehow more spiritual or or can can achieve more um, in the church because they're men. Um, so I don't know. I've kind of seen both, but I've seen more of the slay towards patriarchy. What about what about you, Sarah? Um. For me, also patriarchy. Um, I was very lucky. The church that I went to, uh, First Baptist Waco, when I was in, uh, when I was in Waco before I got married, was they—they they were very definitely a a narrow um, definition of complementarian, and they and uh, in the sense that they they had uh, female deacons, they had um, multiple uh, female staff members, and they would. And Sunday nights, you would actually, you would, okay, you know, Baylor's there, you have lots of uh, female seminary students. And so we would have some that would, uh, that um, we never had anyone, uh, we would never have an an official, I guess you would say sermon on a Sunday morning besides a, such a, a a missionary or someone coming to kind of give testimony of that kind of thing. Uh, But we had, you know, multiple, um, female ministers who would um, lead uh, Sunday evenings, Wednesday nights, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, it was really great for me um, to get to see, to get to see that. Um, In terms of sliding into interchangeability, yeah, I don't know if I've necessarily seen it or maybe I have, and I'm, you know, depending on who you ask, maybe I have seen it and I'm so gobbledygooked up with, you know, modern society that I can't even recognize it for what it is. Like there, there is a chance of that. Right. Um, I will say, um, it, uh, on a, the thing that made me very, that a few years ago that made me very passionately, um, much more of a a narrow complementarianism by, by this, um, is the, the church that my family and by family, I mean, grandparents, great grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, um, from my original hometown in Paris, uh, Texas, they they have they have definitely slid into a patriarchy um, and a much more fundamentalist bent in recent years. And the the thing on it that that it it still almost makes me cry to talk about is my grandmother, who I love with every fiber of my being, just the most outstandingly brilliant eighty six year old that you'll ever meet has taught, had taught adult eight, which is, you know, people in their eighties. She taught adult eight since before I was born. Um, and there had never been a problem with it. She, she did not joint. This was a mixed Sunday school class. She did not joint teach with my grandfather. She 100% prepared the lessons, did all of this on her own. And as this church that she had been a member of since childhood, um, slid into this pay, uh, patriarchal event. Um, they wanted her to sign something. They're like, we still want you to teach, but we need you. You can't teach under your own authority. So we're going to need you to sign something essentially stating that your grandfather is really kind of giving you the spiritual guidance, even though you're the one preparing the lessons and all this, and then you can continue teaching. What? Yeah. 
And which, you know, she had to do that back in like the 60s when she went to get her master's. You know, she had to have his written permission as a married woman to go get her master's. Um, and she wouldn't do it. And my grandfather wouldn't do it either. He's, you know, pro- props to both of them. He he refused and he said it was stupid because he's never helped her with a lesson ever. Why should he's like, why am I going to lie and say she's I'm helping her with this or she's doing this under my own authority? You don't tell Patsy to do anything. Um, and so they moved churches after being members someplace for 65 years. They were they, they moved churches because they would rather be religiously and intellectually fully honest than submit to something that they didn't believe was biblical. That's amazing. Oh yeah. Um, and the thing that makes this a little more, uh, of a family issue is I have, uh, family members who stayed at the church after that happened. So there's like, there's like, we just don't talk about that. Uh, like gatherings. Uh, but yeah, she continues to teach. Um, and she's, I think, very brilliant. She's trying to learn Greek uh, because she decided that she's has heard so many times that the pastor is trying to talk about, well, the Greek uh, root of this word is X. And so she just decided she should learn Greek herself so she can figure all that out on her own. She sounds awesome. She really is. Sorry. I know, I know that was an aside, but um, my, I would say that my grandma Patsy is probably, I mean, my mother, yes, but uh, my grandmother Patsy is an incredibly uh, civically minded woman, um, and I think she is someone who really uh, all uh, really fulfills this kind of complementary and narrow ideal. Uh, she uh, worked it. She uh, taught. She stayed home. She adapted to what was best for her needs and needs of her family. She was, in, and so um, yeah. And I I think that's one of the things that we haven't mentioned, but I'm sure we'll talk about have an episode about this of you know, the ways, how we grow up in terms of if we're egalitarian or complementarian or where we find on that spectrum, so much of it is dependent on the the examples that we've seen either for good or bad. And I feel like I've just had wonderfully good examples. Um, and so it makes it very easy for me to fall into that because like, oh, because I've seen these wonderful women um, be that in their own lives. Katie, we should probably also mention uh, for listeners who are interested more uh, in understanding more about the specifics of Christian patriarchy, the Christian Feminist Podcast did a whole episode specifically on Christian patriarchy. I believe it's episode 80. So if people are are looking for more information specifically on um, that issue, um, that would be a good resource for them to look at. Absolutely. And I will say that... um... I moderated that episode and researching for that episode is one of the more depressing things I've ever done. Um, I like fell down the rabbit hole and just would kept finding myself on, you know, reading these websites for people who had um, kind of left. And the really sad thing is what I, what I've tended to see on with those, with kind of blogs of, of women who were formerly, you know, were raised in a Christian patriarchy environment and now are not in part of that environment anymore. A lot of them, they don't leave Christian patriarchy and become a regular style complementarian. A lot of them leave the church, like stop being Christian. Um, and you know, when Lehman talked about the, the, the negative effects of, he's, he's, he was talking about the negative effects of a broad complementarianism, which is still something very different from Christian patriarchy, but that's where you can see the, the negative effects of that very broad view, um, taken to an extreme with a vengeance. Um, 
And so, yeah, check out that episode, listeners. If you if you don't if you've never heard the phrase Christian patriarchy, you don't know what we're talking about. Listen to that episode because it's got some good basic information. Um, I'm going to kind of summarize the last little portion of the article here um, because I think it gives some really useful. Um, I guess you might call it axes, like an axis, um, a different like a way you know t- t- with different poles to think about um, the complementarianism. So. After he gives his, you know, words of empathy and warning, he gives some counsel at the end. And the first counsel was what Alexis mentioned before about converse with charity. Um, Counsel number two is distinguish law and wisdom and between straight line and jagged line issues and adjust your volume accordingly. Well, there's like seven definitions in what he just said. So I'm going to break it down. So first he talks about the difference between law and wisdom. And, um, And he kind of talks about how we need to recognize that the differences between men and women aren't rooted necessarily in biblical precepts on a page, but, you know, are part of God's design. And that goes with the words on the page. And he, I like this. He says, let those who extol diversity extol the diversity of genders. And he points out that men and women, both are needed to, to image God. They're both created God's image. And um, so he, then he kind of moves on to the idea of law and wisdom and the idea of law, right, as rules. You know, I do not permit a woman to teach over a man. Um, you know, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Kind of um, in terms of laws, in terms of rules, as different from wisdom. And he points out that in the Bible, wisdom overlaps with law, but it's not the same thing. So that he says wisdom issues an ought like men ought to do this, women ought to do that. But the ought of wisdom is different than the one of law. So that wisdom is more like the book of Proverbs. You know, he gives the example, a wise son hears his father's instruction. Um, That's different than a rule like you shall not lie. Um, You know, and he says wisdom's ought comes within ordinarily, usually, you know. um, And that's um, that's what's so great about Proverbs too is that, you know, Right. Even though we sometimes see people take Proverbs as promises, side note, listeners, they're not right. So sometimes you'll see, particularly in parenting books, that people love to take Proverbs as promises and say, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it as if it's somehow a guarantee. But Proverbs aren't promises. But what they're kind of saying is, you know, generally speaking, if you do this, then this will happen. So that, you know, in a general way, if you carefully train up your child in the way he should go, then, you know, hopefully he'll stick with it when he gets older. But again, not a guarantee. Um, And so he talks about how, and I like this metaphor, he says, law gives us the rules of a game. Wisdom tells us how to strategize to win the game on this day, on this field against this opponent. And he says, wisdom is circumstantially mindful. And I think this is really useful because so often in theological arguments, we might want to throw rules at each other. Well, you know, this is the rule, so you're wrong. Or, you know, um, but then, and that is true in some cases, you know, um, it's difficult to argue with a rule. But where wisdom comes in is that not every situation is the same. And so he says if the, you know, if... uh, wisdom of Proverbs says a wise son hears his father's instruction, you know, he points out that if you, if you're thinking circumstantially though, the father might be a fool or a thief or, you know, be giving mixed advice, right? So it's not as clear cut. And, um, he then, so then he takes that idea of law versus wisdom and, and pairs it with this idea of straight line and jagged line issues. 
so that he says, there's a straight shot from the Bible verse, you shall not murder, to the practical application, abortion is wrong. That's what he means by straight line issues. So the straight line stuff kind of goes with the rules, right? Um, it's difficult to read, I do not permit a woman to teach over a man. And we would say, as complementarians, we would say, you can't read that and not see a straight line to, a woman shouldn't be the only lead pastor in a church, in charge of everyone in the church, right? That's a straight line. However, um, wisdom helps with the jagged line issues, he says. Um, and jagged line issues are issues where scripture doesn't speak directly on a topic, but instead um, requires a person to balance a number of biblical and circumstantial principles so that um, it's not clear, it's disputable. So that, you know, if the straight, if a straight line issue, uh, you know, or if, if, if the Bible tells us do not steal, for me with my students at school, it's a straight line for me from do not steal to plagiarism is wrong. You've stolen someone else's work and presented it as your own. That's obviously wrong. But it, other it things, doesn't hurt anybody, Katie. I know, right? It doesn't no, hurt that, anybody. <laughs> nobody cares that I've stolen their intellectual property, right? Yeah, they might try to argue that it's a jagged line issue. It's not, or at least I don't think it is. Um, examples of jagged line issues he gives are things like tax policy or healthcare policy. Um, or on a more personal level, we might say the ways families function in the home tend to be jagged line issues. Um, you know, the Bible doesn't say, it, there's no verse in the Bible that says every mother must be a stay-at-home mother. For real, that is the rule. That's not there. And so, um, he, and, and one of the examples he gives, um, and he kind of, as a test case, he talks about the idea of should a, uh, should a mother work outside the home or not. And he, he, he takes that on as a jagged line issue and kind of goes into some detail about that. And, you know, um, how... There are, you know, are some principles in scripture that we could take into account, but then also there are some circumstantial things we take into account. Um, and the last thing, he, one of the last things he talks about is that he says, because everything's not a straight line law issue, and so many things require, are, are jagged line issues that require that wisdom, he says that we as Christians need to know how to adjust our volume depending on the issue. So that, you know, yeah, raise your voices for something that's a straight line law issue. But maybe don't start screaming if it's something that's a jagged line issue and that's of wisdom. And I think he's right. I think that's a pitfall we fall into a lot of times, particularly nowadays when so many of our debates are happening online where we don't have to see the impact of our volume on another person's face because we're not talking in person. Um, I think everything's just jacked up to 11. And so we're all at top volume all the time. Even and you can see this the most, I think, on like Facebook or message boards where, you know, something that should be a jagged line issue that requires wisdom and nuance and everyone in the thread is talking as if it is law and it's a straight line issue and nobody should have another opinion. 280 um, characters is plenty of time to completely flesh out the great depths of theological dis discussion. And if you can't do that, Katie. I mean, that's your fault. <laughs> I, can, I obviously can do that very easily. Right, um, obviously. So, you know, that, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, man. My, my favorite one is not theological at all. My favorite, my favorite jagged line issue that everybody tries to act like is a straight line issue is the breastfeeding versus formula issue. Um, most people on either side of that debate tend to act like it's a straight line issue when really it's a jagged line issue. But that's, a, that's like a talk for another day. But um, I... My uh, on that is like it's none of your business. It's never anyone else's business. Oh my gosh, it is everyone's business, man. Or at least they act like it is. Um, 
what so what do you what do you ladies think about these the, these kind of different um axes law versus wisdom straight line versus jagged line were those dichotomies useful for you or do you feel like that um that maybe he took it too far so i i liked both of these dichotomies but i had some reservations about each of them so with the law and wisdom dichotomy that he points out i i like it a lot um but i i'm not entirely convinced that it fits with uh yeah, that it's consistent with scripture, um, just because I, I struggle with the idea of making an unwise choice and having it be somehow unwise and yet not sinful. I'm not entirely sure there's a category for things that are that that fall short, um, obviously, uh, of whatever is is the ideal, um, but somehow are not sin. Like, I don't know. I'm not confident that there's that middle category. Um, a lot of the language about folly in the Bible is really strong. It seems to be pretty sinful stuff that, that is often described. So it may be that there's room for folly that is not sin um, or a lack of wisdom that is not sin. But I, I'd want to think about that a little bit more before embracing that um, wholly. Although I do certainly think that the way the law is applied in a particular situation um people may differ in what they conclude about that. And I, I think that the, the nature of God means that somebody is right and somebody is wrong, but we just may not always be able to know that now. Um, so yeah, so I liked that. Um, it, it resonated with me on a personal level, but I'd, I'd want to be a little bit more careful before endorsing it as, as uh, scriptural. Uh, although I have a lot of uh, respect for, for Lehman and, and he's, he is probably right. And I just haven't gotten there yet in my reasoning. Um, and then the straight line, jagged line dichotomy, I also thought was helpful, um, but I'm I'm curious as to how useful it will prove to be, or how easily it is employed on the ground, um, because I think that there's a lot more disagreement about what is a straight line issue and what is a jagged line issue um, than we might hope. So I think there's a lot of things that uh, one group of folks may be, may view as straight line and another group of folks does not. Um, even the abortion question that that he raises, uh, even among those who who believe that abortion uh, is a sin in in many contexts, may have questions about things like when life begins or certain extenuating circumstances and things like that. So there may even be people who who reach different conclusions about that even trying to adhere to the biblical admonition uh, against murder. Um, so, so yeah. And, and similarly, I think, you know, some of the things that he points out, like healthcare policy, he views that as a jagged line issue. I would imagine you could easily find some folks with a more progressive view than Jonathan Lehman, who would maybe be inclined to view that as a straight line issue. Um, and, and I think that, that could be difficult. So I don't know about the practical utility of that distinction if there is not agreement or consensus on which uh, type of issue you're dealing with. Um, and, and it's particularly interesting, I think, because of the cultural trend that we see now, um, honestly, partly because of the political climate that we're in, uh, where more and more issues are being labeled as straight line issues. Um, and uh, And it's been an interesting flip-flop because for years, folks who took a more socially conservative view, uh, they were the ones who were making every issue a straight line issue. 
Um, and folks who took a more progressive view would be advocating for the freedom to disagree or um, uh, different strokes for different folks or, or whatever. Um, and now what we've got is a flip of that where you see more and more the conservative, uh, the socially conservative folks now arguing for charity and room to disagree and folks who tend to be more progressive, I, I feel like it's a lot more frequent that I will hear them. Uh, people who used to be advocates for pluralism and individual right of conscience uh, in increasingly unwilling to agree to disagree. So assuming that you could actually agree on whether you're dealing with a, a straight line or jagged line issue, that would be a helpful distinction. But I, I'm skeptical about how, you, how uh, useful it would be on the ground. Uh, I think it's definitely a situation of where you stand depends on where you sit. Um, and exactly like Alexis has stated, that there, there are very basic things that we, that as the faith, we still can't agree on. And so the idea that like, well, this is a super obvious one, um, like you said, abortion or healthcare policy, like it is a very, very straight line for some of those uh, believers. And it's, and it's, it's very easy to say like, well, obviously my view of what is a straight line is the definition of that. Um and so I think a lot of this goes back to, um, as our author um, Lehman was talking about earlier, uh, that we we need to we need to have grace uh, with each other in our conversations, and that we need to give each other the benefit of a doubt um, while we're having these conversations. Um, and ideally, we're having these conversations face to face in a respectful manner, um, and never done as you know. Um, via social media because good lord nothing good comes from that particularly when people end up in echo chambers like I think that's one reason I've liked being a CFP too is I feel like I have I have more interaction I would say I probably have more interaction with people of wildly disparate political and religious viewpoints than a lot of other people in my family or you know friends that I know um, and I think it's made me more charitable, <laughs> you know, um, having friends on both sides of any given debate um, is makes me more willing to listen to everyone's point of view. It doesn't doesn't change what I what I believe, but it makes me more willing to listen. And, um, you know, being a conservative Christian who came through secular graduate school um, can do that for a person, I guess, <laughs> you know, um, it kind of made me more willing to, to see both sides. And I see what you guys are saying, and you're right. This is mainly useful if you can agree on which lines are straight and which lines are um, jagged. And also, the line can change depending on where you're drawing it from. So that egalitarians would say, well, yeah, we draw a straight line from there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither male nor female in the church. You know, they choose certain Bible verses and they draw their straight line to women pastors are fine because of this verse. We complementarians do the same, you know, we, we a lot of times we do the same thing, but just with different verses. So that we'll say, well, we draw a straight line from these verses, you know. So it is important to remember that everybody's not going to be coming from the same direction, as it were. I think it might be fair to, to observe here that, that maybe what Jonathan Lehman is trying to say uh, is that we should have uh, in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and in all things love. Exactly. Which, if you don't know, listeners, that's the motto of the Christian Feminist Podcast. So very nice placement, Alexis. <laughs> um, which, yeah, I mean, that's a great it's a, it's a great summary because he does. He talks about not binding consciences and observing freedom and our Christian freedom. 
And, uh, and we're going to talk in just a second um, about how we do that in our own lives and get a little bit more personal. But before we move on to that, that's what we're going to do at the end. I just wanted to ask quickly, is there anything else that you would have added to his article that he never mentioned at all? Any other like term or uh, metaphor or any, any other useful way of talking about all this same ideas, something that he didn't mention that you would add? None on my end. I think one issue that he mentioned, he, he sort of mentions it in passing, but I think it's worth dwelling on a little bit more. Um, and that is the value of manhood and womanhood in creation. Um, and and we, we talked about this some actually in a Christian feminist podcast episode uh, on the writings of Dorothy Sayers. Um, it was podcast uh, CFP episode 48 and actually uh, came up again on a, a guest episode we did um over on the city of man in their episode on femininity, uh, their episode 65. But I think, I do think it matters um, that I'm a woman um, and not just because society treats me a particular way. I think there is something about me uh, that it means something that I'm a woman. And I think it means something that God chose to reflect his image using two genders um, from creation um, that something about two genders maybe reflects his image, maybe, maybe that they reflect it differently or that their interactions a, as different genders somehow would, would f- more fully reflect his image. But but there's there's something going on there, I think. And and I think that we need to to hold to that. Um, and if we're not careful, um, an overly narrow view of complementarianism, it has the potential to essentially define women out of existence. And this is what we talked about in the, in the Sayers episode. Um, is there such a thing as a woman? And I think if you're not careful, a narrow or mere view of complementarianism can essentially answer, there is a woman in the home and there is a woman in the church and there is not such a thing as a woman anywhere else. Um, and I think that that's, that's problematic for me. I think that there is such a thing as a woman everywhere. And, and I admit, I, I, I empathize. Uh, Jonathan Lehman mentions in the article a friend of his who's a narrow complementarian who basically says it means something to be a man. It means something to be a woman. But we're not ever allowed to say what it means. Um, that is, we can't give content to any of those definitions that there there is some kind of definition of manhood and womanhood. But we're not allowed to to provide any content there. I, I sympathize with that because I don't know what I would put in those fields. If you look at them as, you know, an, an empty field in a spreadsheet somewhere, uh, I would know what to put there um, in order to to create a definition that encompasses um, women in a way that is uh, is complete and not just uh, based on stereotypes and things like that. Um, so I, I I sympathize with that, but I I do think that there is some kind of content there, and I do think it means something. So I think he he, he points to creation there, uh, and he does this some in the wisdom discussion where he says, you know, we can point to uh, the epistles for specific uh, restrictions and and um, Paul Paul's instructions forbidding particular things. But when we're looking at the positive side of it, um, what does it mean? Why are there those rules? What do they reflect? Uh, we, we can look to creation. I don't have an answer. I just, I think that there is one. That makes a whole lot of sense. And that, that's actually a perfect transition into the last bit. Um, so we're, we're, we're winding down here, but one thing that um, really wanted to do in our first episode, partially to, uh, again, as a further way of introducing ourselves to listeners, but also just because we've been talking about definitions and spec on the spectrum of, of complementarian thought. So kind of bearing in mind, 
all these various ideas, narrow, broad, straight, jagged, you know, all of these different things. Let's just talk for a little bit about um, who are we then, personally? Where do we fall on the complementarian spectrum? You know, do we see ourselves as broad or narrow or mere complementarian or whatever, um, or some mix of these? So we're just gonna kind of go through and, and each just kind of give a little bit about where we see ourselves as kind of where we where we fall. And um, let's start with Alexis and then move to Sarah and I'll, I'll finish. Um, so um, as a, as a trained attorney who currently holds elected office, I'm obviously not all that broad of a complementarian. Um, but I, I would say probably based on, on this discussion, I, I would fall into the, uh, the narrow complementarian view. Um, but uh, I would categorize myself as an uneasy narrow complementarian or, or maybe a pragmatic narrow complementarian. Uh, I'm unwilling to go beyond the specific clear commands of scripture um, and to call sin something that the Bible does not call sin, or uh, as Lehman talks about, to bind people beyond what is bound in the Bible. Uh, but I do think there's a lot to recommend a, a more systematic view of gender. I, I tend to be a fan of systematic theology in general, but particularly with this issue. Um, and as I just said, I do think the creation of man and women uh, man and woman in God's image does mean something and that we bring glory to him differently than we would if we were not distinct from one another. Uh, but since I can point to no explicit command uh, regarding the specifics of what manhood is or what womanhood is, and since I can't myself articulate a satisfactory definition, I'm left with the narrow view Um so narrow view, but but sort of dissatisfied with that. I suspect there is a broader systematic view, but until we know what it is, I don't see how we could possibly apply it or enforce it. Um, and I certainly think we need to be very cautious about using a biblical view of gender as a basis uh, for regulating uh, any kind of behavior of those outside the church or, or of uh, behavior in general outside of the church. So uneasy or dissatisfied narrow complementarian would probably cover it. Um, I just want to add an amen to that, Alexis. Um, I guess I'll talk, even though basically that's almost exactly how I would uh, come down on this. I myself would ideal um, kind of identify, yeah, as a narrow complementarian, and mostly I, I I will say I have very and part of that mainly comes from I have an extremely strong libertarian streak, and. Uh, frequently what that basically means is I will say this is how I, it applies to my life, but I, it is very, very difficult for me in any circumstance to look at anything and prescriptively recommend things for someone else's life. Um, and yes, I, I will say that in terms before people start writing in angrily and saying like, yes, I think children are going to be uh, raised best in, uh, two-parent household, uh, married, income, yes, all of those basic things, yes. But in terms of if a single woman decides to put her, if any individual woman decides to put her children in daycare because she wants to work and they could afford to stay home, okay, sure, that, that's up to you. That, you know, the what what is best for each individual family, we, we can make these broad kind of statements about like, well, this may work for... In general, this may be good or that may be good, but we are all individuals and we have individual family units. And so I, I will I re refuse to prescribe 
anything to someone else because like I said, I just have that very, very strong libertarian streak. And so for myself, I fall, like I said, I fall into that narrow complementarian, but, uh, and that mainly comes from that idea. Um, God has given us so much freedom that, that what works for me, I just, I understand it may not be what fits for someone else and who someone else and what another woman's needs are and what her, her family, her family's needs are. And so, Yes, I I want I want everyone to live as fully with the full freedom that the Lord provides us. I think um, I I I would I would definitely say maybe the word is uneasy. I you know I would call myself definitely more narrow than broad. I also like the term mere complementarian, um, simply because for me it all comes down to the 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 bible the words on the page right he talked about biblicist and um i'm not gonna lie i i'm not you know there are times when i am when i don't love that it says straight up on the page i do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in part now most of the times when i don't love that it's because someone in more in the broad camp has said something like women shouldn't be police officers or something right like that one piper one um but you know I, I tend to, to always, I, I find myself much more likely to, um, to chafe against the, the, you know, like you talked about law wisdom. I find myself chasing, chafing more against the law than I really feel like I should. Um, and not, uh, not that I'm egalitarian cause I'm not, but I think that, um, you know, for me, the days that I'm frustrated that I do believe a complementarian theology, what I remind myself is this is what God has spoken. You know, and I'm not always. I'm not going to know this side of heaven. I'm not going to know all the reasons why. Like you said, Alexis, there's something there. I believe that there's something there. There is something systematic happening, um, but I'm reluctant to, to 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 go broad in the sense of trying to define what that is. And also just because I have too much Dorothy Sayers in me, right? I, I'm always thinking about Sayers, you know, writing in Are Women Human and and talking about being frustrated when people would ask her something like, as a woman what do you think about this issue? And it be something that's not even really related to gender or, you know, what do you, you know, how do you, how do you work as a writer as a woman? As if like, you know, being a woman somehow makes her a completely different kind of writer than a man would be. And I, and I don't like that, you know, I don't love that the kind of broad or systematic idea of making generalities about all women versus all men. Because I do think like Sayer says that, that women and men, that we share, I mean, as much as we are different, we share a whole lot more with each other than we necessarily realize. And so I think that's why I think that's what keeps me narrow and not broad is just a discomfort with the impulse to try to to make everything about gender. Like, or to make, you know, I, like, I, I get frustrated. Like, the other day I was, I, I took my kid, um, one of my kids into Lifeway Christian store because I was waiting for my little guy to get out of there, my other little guy to get out of therapy. And there's, like, a woman's study Bible. And I'm thinking, really? Like, I mean, and I know there's a million different, like, targeted study Bibles. It's not like it's only done for women. But I remember thinking, I don't think I need a woman's Bible to read the Bible. I'm just a woman, and I'm reading the Bible. I think I could just take the regular Bible, you know, um, but that, that, that kind of impulse to make everything about, you know, and I, and I think that impulse is more common in a broad complementarian sense of making everything, filtering everything through the lens of gender frustrates me. 
And I think that that is one of the things that keep that is the the one of the biggest things that keeps me narrow. Um, even though, as Lehman says, there are problems with the narrow view because if you're literally restricting, you know, it to just church and the home, then he's not wrong that those other that that you know, it starts to seem a little arbitrary, you know. Um, if I think it's fine for a woman to be president, but then I say, but not fine for her to be, you know, pastor of a church, that's going to sound like crazy talk to someone outside the complementarian church. And I kind of get why. Um, so, you know, that's hard. The other thing I think that keeps me narrow as opposed to broad is that I've seen, you know, for me, it, because it is about the words on the page, I've seen something troubling to me in that broad camp, um, which is sometimes I'll see pastors or writers or theologians what doing what looks to me like diminishing women in scripture because of their systematic views and I'll give an example and I'll say a name and I'm not trying to be ugly but um, one of the people I've seen do this is MacArthur John MacArthur um, there's a book a little book called God's High Calling for Women which they should have had another focus group about the cover because the woman on the cover is faceless you can't see her face you only see like her side and her arm or something. And I thought, really, that doesn't seem very good. If you're going to say we have a high calling, you don't even give this woman a face. Um, but in the book, you know, he's he's very much coming from a broad, systematic viewpoint. Um, he seems to be coming from the viewpoint that there is something about women that is unsuited to certain types of leadership and um, that a man really would, you know, it, th that men are more capable of that type of leadership, which is why God put them in that position. But um, that that idea then leads him to um, kind of systematically diminish um, female prophets in the Bible. So he, he kind of goes through this argument of saying, well, here's why, you know, Deborah wasn't really a prophetess, or here's why this woman, like, you know, he, he's kind of defining prophecy in a way that doesn't really include the women in the Bible who were called prophets on the page. And it's that kind of stuff, too, that keeps me narrow. I get really frustrated when I see um, people in that broad camp, to me, misinterpret scriptural words that are on the page as a way to try to make scripture fit their view. Um, you see this sometime, too. You'll, every now and then you'll see kind of broad complementarians or people who slide towards patriarchy trying to act, for example, like... Um, like that um, Priscilla and Aquila weren't actually teaching Apollos together. Even though what it literally says is on the pages, they took him aside and they taught him a better way. So as you'll see people in the broad camp um, say, well, really he was, he was probably teaching. And, and she was there. She was just helping. She was there to help. I'm and sure I'm they go back to some like, well, you know, the original Greek is actually more like they showed and so showing is not teaching. And so, I mean. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's that's the stuff that keeps me narrow. Cause yeah, the narrow the narrow complementarian way is not perfect. But when you know, if I'm gonna choose a way to err, I'd rather err towards being too narrow than err towards being too broad. <laughs> and I don't know if that's right or not. And I will say too, it's worth pointing out that to to to, to an outsider, our household probably looks egalitarian in a lot of ways. Because, you know, and, and some of that is, is just personality. David and I are the type of people that, I mean, yes, David's the head of our household. Like, if it came to, if it came down to it and we were in disagreement, I would defer to him. Because, but it's literally never happened. Like, there's never been a situation where we've been in complete disagreement and I've deferred to him because he's the head of our household. Because we tend to just talk everything out. So 
the other, you know, I, I like where Lehman said, you know, I need to hedge by saying that the environments I've lived in have not been rife with patriarchy. So my, my you know, my uh, perspective's limited. And I'll say that same thing about myself. You know, um, it's easy for me to, um, I don't know, I, it's easy for me to function in my complementarian marriage without much effort because of the way that my husband is, the way that we work together. Um, you know, I never have to worry about our marriage sliding towards patriarchy, right? Um, and that informs the way that I define my own complementarianism. Um, you know, um, and I say that we probably look egalitarian from the outside, and I mean that in a decision-making sense, but I mean, if you just looked at what we do, you know, to me it's clear that we're complementarian because my husband works full-time, I'm home with my children 90% of the time, despite the fact that we both have PhDs. To me that, you know, obviously we're functioning in a complementarian way. We're not trying to both do the same thing, right, at the same time, in the same way. You know. Well, and I think the stuff that makes stuff like that important is because you, you, so many people would see that like, and say this is an inherently unfair situation. And the thing that always makes me very resentful when I, I see or hear accusations of that is, the idea is if you aren't a that you don't have full and complete agency on your own to help make some of these decisions. Um, yes. And mm-hmm. I one of I, my best friend in the whole world, um, she she is an engineer. Um, she has an engineering degree. She just does not currently work for an, uh, is not working. She uh, she and her husband worked for the same incredibly like multi billion dollar like engineering company. And when they had their kid, you know, she, they, they were so desperate to keep women to have female engineers that they, she essentially got to take an entire year of maternity leave. And she took the whole thing. And then she realized at the end of it, she just would, she, she preferred being a mother, right? Like there were, and that there are, there are things in life that you, you don't know until you have the kid. Like, I have, I've seen so many friends who, who, who they were going to do the full time thing and they had a kid like, man, I enjoy this more than I thought they were. And they genuinely do. And the idea to me, the thing that helps keep me, uh, slightly that I think keeps me complimentarian is I, I, there, there are very few things that I resent more than this, uh, forced, um, that you'll, you hear it on, you hear it many times that this idea that, well, we need more women in certain types of positions. Um, and I always say, like, well, are you concerned that we don't have more male preschool teachers? Um, yeah. and, and for me, the idea is what we are doing is we are defining what is the masculine norm as success. And we minimize the natural things women are good at, at as a society and even some professional feminists, that the things that women on average naturally are drawn to um, – nurturing childcare relationships and those are inherently bad because they're inherently feminine and it's not necessarily that the patriarchy is telling us this like we will even have very professional feminists saying you shouldn't do that right and to me that just really takes away a lot of the agency uh that women have and that's one of the things that keeps me complementarian is because for me like I see that there are women who are naturally gifted at certain things. And so if a woman, whatever woman's going to choose to do, that's what she needs to do. It's best for her and her individual family. Right. 
Yeah, and I think, yeah, go ahead, Alexis. I was going to say, uh, yeah, mas- masculinity is aspirational, is what we talked about in the the, uh, the City of Man podcast on femininity. This idea that that it is a it is a promotion, it is improving yourself to to pursue uh, stereotypically masculine fields or or things like that. To become more like a man is to improve, um, and, and it is not it's not actually. Uh, depending on who you're talking to, it may not actually be egalitarian uh, as it might sound, but that idea of masculinity is aspirational. I think is exactly what you're talking about, Sarah. Yes. I also think, um, I think you see that too in the church where soon as you'll have people on the egalitarian side who, who are obsessed with the idea that, that, you know, it's oppressive. If women aren't, don't have access to every possible venue of ministry, including being the lead pastor of a church, that it's somehow inherently oppressive. But I think that one one you know kind of weakness of that is that then that becomes kind of the obsession, and so there's such a focus on getting women into that role, the role of lead pastor, that other you know more tradition other other roles in the church traditionally occupied by women are then minimized, right? So that, you know, you're, you're, you, you might start encouraging all your young women to go to seminary to be lead pastors and, and trying to get them, like, not to work in the nursery because that's what women have done. We've done that. Like, we need to blaze new trails or whatever, you know. And I think um, what's a better way would be to affirm, you know, affirm women where, wherever they're ministering. And, I, and, and one thing I think the complementarian church is not great at that it needs to be much better at is making the point that, even though in our complementarian churches, some roles like being the lead pastor are barred from women, but that, um, that, that doesn't mean that there aren't like lots of places in the church where women who have, who have gifts of leadership can use those roles. I think sometimes, um, you might get the idea just from the way people talk in some complementarian churches that like only some of the spiritual gifts apply to women, right? Like that, you know, we all have hospitality, and, you know, maybe a couple of other ones, but, um, you know, but the reality is that, um, as scripture teaches us that all people can have any of the spiritual gifts. There's not, there's no distinctions made by gender in terms of gifting. So obviously then there are women out there gifted with leadership skills, gifted with teaching skills. And I think complementarian churches could do a better job of making sure that women have the abilities to use all of their gifts, even if, you know, that doesn't mean standing up in front and being the lead pastor of the church. Well, I was, um, I was one of the guests on about a year and a half ago on a, the Christian, like women, women in church leadership episode. And, um, the, the thing that I, uh, and I, I definitely being a complementarian had a very different view from the, the other panelists. But one of the things that for me, I always say is you, you, sometimes you have these, these people just like, like, oh, we got to have women like leadership, like, well, what are you doing in your individual church? Well, I'm, I'm really just telling other people that they need to do certain things. I'm telling, I'm, my leadership is making sure that other women need to be in leadership, you know? Okay, well, it's, it's. Though it, it wouldn't ring as hollow if you were actually doing and fulfilling as much leadership as you could in your given church. I see what you're saying. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's, you know, you ca- you have to be able to, to, to put some skin in the game, to do the thing that you think should be done. And, and, and in your context as best you can, rather than always agitating for something different. Um, but I think we need to wind down because we've, um, we've run a little long, but, um, Shock thank you. I know, right. 
shockingly, we have gone long. But um, I just I want to first say thank you to Sarah and Alexis for joining me um, and for being willing to talk uh, and really get into the weeds and talk a lot about complementarian theology. And um, thank you to listeners for sticking with us through all these many definitions. And um, as we move forward with this series, we're going to be looking at uh, all of these different issues, lots of different facets of complementarian life and theology. And we hope that you'll join us uh, for those discussions. So uh, thank you very much for joining us for Complementarian-ish.